Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Mary Beth Blair. Mary Beth is Director of Legal Operations at Coursera and is an incredibly experienced attorney. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Mary Beth Blair. Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Mary Beth, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Malden, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So it's one of the older areas of the States, actually. So yeah, grew up in the Boston area. Why then did you decide to study at Trinity College of Vermont? That was kind of an interesting little story about resources. So I was really good high school student, finished close to the top of my class. So I got into a lot of more prestigious schools. The only way to go to those schools was for, to take out a lot of loans. And this little college in Vermont found me and offered me a full scholarship. So everything, tuition, room and board, the whole nine yards. And thankfully I took it because I got a great education and I didn't come out of college with a whole bunch of debt. So that's why I ended up there. And Vermont was obviously a fantastic place to go to school. So I've had the pleasure of visiting Vermont. It's a beautiful part of the country. And obviously you were a high achiever academically from a young age. Was there a particular point when you decided you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, just being honest, it wasn't like I had this burning desire from childhood to become a lawyer. You know, going through college, I kind of figured out where my strong suits were and being intellectually curious, which I think is really important to the practice of law. And I knew I really didn't have a great head for for medicine or things like that. So law just seemed like a logical choice for just my interests and where my strengths were. You then went on to study law in Suffolk University. What was your first job then straight after college? So I went to law school right after college. So my first real world job was working as a legal secretary while I was in law school. So I worked for a small firm in Boston, which was a great way, again, to learn really how the practice of law works when you work, especially when in a small firm, you really get to see the day-to-day of people that are kind of in the trenches practicing law and the not so glamorous side of, of it as well. So it was an awesome experience. That's so important when there can be that kind of idealized view of what it is to be a lawyer. If you're just watching Ali McBeal or yeah. these things, that spending a bit of time in a law firm can certainly give you a different perspective on the profession. And obviously it didn't put you off. You then went on to start your career as a real estate lawyer could you maybe tell us a little bit about how your role with Corrigan, Bennett and Belfort progressed and evolved in that kind of early stage in your career? Yeah. So I will say the first thing I did was I actually did some civil litigation right out of law school. Very briefly, it was enough to be like, yeah, this is not for me. I'm not a very litigious person. So then I, I did get into real estate and it was the real estate boom time, right? So it made sense to go into that. I worked with a great team there. There was a firm that had different specialties, real estate being one. I came in having, you know, just going to be part of the real estate team and just push through closings and more closings and title reviews and all that good stuff. And over time, just being there in a short period, what they discovered was, hey, she can actually manage this herself. So I ended up managing the real estate piece of it. 
which allowed my manager then to kind of go on and bring in more business and kind of deal with other areas. So yeah, it was, it was terrific while the real estate market was exploding. <laughs> it was never a dull moment at that point in time. Qualified as a lawyer around, around the same time. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting time to be kind of practicing law at the kind of peak of the boom before things took a change of direction. Before going on to talk about the recession, the impact that had on your career, first observation, I was speaking to Mike Haven recently on the podcast to Heads Up Clock, and he was making a similar observation, the impact of taking on responsibility as a young lawyer, uh, demonstrating that you have a high threshold in terms of your capability to manage things end to end and the kind of the impact that can have that early in your career being given a lot of responsibility. And do you think the firm you were in was that was more conducive to allowing you that responsibility as compared to a much larger firm? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing, like, I'm really sure I would, I have liked probably to come out of law school and gotten to work at a, at a huge firm and paid off all my law school loans in year one, like a lot of my colleagues. But I think working in these smaller settings, whether it was as the legal secretary or then going into this was a smaller firm, it allowed me a lot of responsibility, particularly as a woman, but I think not just, this isn't unique just to women. As a human being, you suffer a little bit of imposter syndrome all the time, kind of going, okay, when are they going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing? And when somebody looks at your work and says, you're really doing good work and we're going to give you more, it really kind of gave me a lot of confidence in my career just by the fact that they kept giving me more responsibility. So yeah, I don't know that would be something that you would get at that stage in your career at a bigger firm. And did you have any particular mentors within the firm that played an important role in your development? Because in my experience, it never kind of happens in a vacuum. There's definitely people there, role models that you need to learn from. Yeah. So the partner that managed me was Brian Corrigan. He was not that much further ahead than I was like out of law school, but had done some bigger firm work in real estate and things like that. So he had advanced a little bit further in his career more quickly than I had, but he was always just kind of behind the scenes, encouraging me and cheering me on and having faith in me to do the job and having faith in me to bubble up issues when I, when I needed to. So yeah, he was definitely a, an influence for me at that point. I spent a brief time myself when I was, I work generally as a corporate lawyer and I was working on the law firm side of things. But I spent a brief period of time, I think it was around kind of 2009, 2010, in the kind of construction department of the practice I was in. And it was it was a tough time. You were obviously at the kind of the tip of the spear, I suppose, of the financial crisis working in a real estate practice. How did that impact your career? Because I know you, you kind of went on to work as a consultant in the direct aftermath of 2008. Yeah, so I this was my first experience with getting laid off, which was, I was still fairly young. I was ill-prepared to be laid off like on any level. I didn't even really know what it meant. I like, I walked out the door the day they laid me off and was sort of like, I don't even know what to do. Like, what do I, what am I entitled to? Do I, so I had to kind of, it, it just, it humbled me beyond all belief. And I had to just start figuring out okay, like, what do I do to pay the bills? Okay, so I got to go file for unemployment and all that. And then if you're getting laid off, so are a whole bunch of other people. And I was seeing it in these suburban law firms where they were just like folding almost. The firm that had six people now had one. Mm. So in keeping my relationship with 
Korg and Bennett and Belfort was kind of like, okay, they don't need me full time, but maybe they need me like here and there. Cause there was still, you know, there was still some business, just the book of business wasn't big enough to support uh, a full-time body. So I started doing that, right. Going, okay, here's, I'm going to pitch to them that I can help them. And then, and pitch to other small firms that where you need me, I can jump in. I can do the closings and the title reviews. I'll type up your title insurance policies. At that point, it's like, I got to pay the bills while I figure out what I want to be in the next phase of my career. So it was sort of, it was really, it was challenging beyond belief, but so grateful that it happened because it, I just like, I never, even then I never pictured myself spending the rest of my career doing real estate. I just didn't. So it sort of forced me out. And I think it just forced me to, to grow up personally and professionally. And it obviously took a huge amount of resilience to work your way through that situation and, and go on to build such an incredibly successful career. Obviously, we're in a pretty challenging economic environment at the moment where layoffs are occurring in some organizations. Is there any kind of advice you'd give to a, a lawyer or a legal ops professional kind of finding themselves in that position today? Yeah, I, I think it's, well, For first of all, always have... <laughs> always have a cushion for your personal life. Like seriously, when they when you see that on TV where people are like, hey, have six months of savings, have six months of savings. That's on a personal note. On a professional note, always be networking, right? And I'm guilty of this too. It's sometimes it's, I have so much work on my plate. I can't take the time sometimes to network. Network, network, network while you have mm -hmm. a good career going. Like never let that slip. Because when the times get tough and they will for you inevitably, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. uh, your company gets acquired, the economy is, is a downturn, whatever it happens to be, those are the people that can help you, especially during COVID. And when so many people lost jobs during COVID, not just legal jobs, but having a network of people to reach out to and say, does anybody know of anyone? Or it's just it's invaluable to, to have those people behind you that can, that because you just never know. You put the word out on a LinkedIn or something yeah. and somebody knows somebody who knows somebody. And it, maybe you don't get the, the job that you're, that's your dream job, but it's, it's a job to, to keep your career moving forward. So that's my thing is don't under, underestimate the, the power of networking. 100%. And obviously it's a lot easier today in some ways with, really powerful communities like legal operations for legal ops specialists and, and and having platforms like LinkedIn, which are connecting people in a way that, that didn't exist back in 2008. You, you then found yourself working in Panera Bread. What attracted you to the organization? I knew I wanted to be in-house at some point in my career. I just knew that I didn't want to do the law firm thing. I didn't want to try to figure out, you know, getting into a firm and billable hours. And so Again, through a network, through networking, I knew somebody that worked there and I knew that they were looking for somebody to take a counsel position. And I always tell the story, I feel like I wedged my foot in the door and I wouldn't let them close it. I'm like, you want to hire me? You do, you do. Uh, just give me a chance. And so, I, but it was, again, it was through a network of people that I knew that I found out they never, I don't think they ever even posted the job because I networked my way into it so that was and, and it was Panera I mean it's a it's a well-known brand it was a, a brand that had a, a great mission had a great culture I knew all that from the person I knew that worked there so it was kind of a no-brainer to me 
I'm curious, you mentioned you you always had it in your mind, you were going to find your way into working in the in-house space. Did you have involvement with legal technology and operations initiatives from day one in the role? I actually did, because that was one of the things that when they talked about hiring me, the task was, hey, we need to do something about wrangling in our contracts. We're tracking contracts on a spreadsheet. Like We've got to do better than that so that we have more visibility into what we're working on, better reporting, that we can report on more metadata than just what we're getting off the spreadsheet. And then there was just this whole inconsistency around how data was being entered. And so that was one of the first things when I came in was we want you to do contracts, but we want you to kind of help us. There wasn't a lot of budget for it either. So it was like, okay, see what you can do with this amount of money and just bring some organization via technology to our contracts, which we started small. And by the time I left there, they were well on their way to having a much more digitized way of tracking contracts. And and Mary Beth, you did ultimately take full responsibility formally for legal operations at Panera, correct? Correct. There was a couple of different general counsels there, but one of the last ones, his whole thing was he was in tune with legal ops being the future and the importance of having somebody in that role. And again, I think what you know, it was more of, we don't know quite what we want to do with it. So it doesn't make sense to go out and hire somebody full-time yet. Let's see if there's somebody on the team that would be interested in doing it. I think because I had the technology background and because of just some of my business skills that they saw in my negotiations in my inner workings with the cross-functionally across the across Panera, they asked me, is this something you'd be interested in doing? And I wasn't even that in tune to legal ops at that point. So I started researching it and I was like, oh, this would be a really interesting career path. So yeah, I jumped at the chance. And looking back now, what would you say the most impactful legal ops projects were that you worked on while at Panera? E-billing. Absolutely e-billing. It's like the number one I mean, it's great to have a contract management system or even a a matter system or whatever, but we were doing paper billing at Panera the entire time I was there until I took on the legal ops role. And the administrative nightmare of the bill sitting on a lawyer's desk and, oh, we got to go back to them and tell them to make a change because this isn't the right fee and and all that, and then trying to get the bills over to the accounting department, and then trying to track how much we spent without having to keep going to accounting or finance and saying, hey, can we see what we spent this quarter, or trying to track it on a spreadsheet. Just e-billing had a, it freed up so much time for the lawyers, and you could just see this almost immediately because it was just so much easier to see where the flags were. As opposed to when they think when lawyers are looking at paper bills, it's like, oh, okay, this looks good to me. If anybody's starting out, like trying to build a legal ops function, start with, do you have an e-billing system? And if you don't, you want to talk about showing, demonstrating bang for your buck. That's probably the quickest win you could get in, in legal operations if a company hasn't done it yet. It all struck me there was a reason it was the kind of foundational pillar of the clock toward 12 core competencies. And obviously, as one of the founders of Bright Flag, I think that, <laughs> that visibility, that understanding of your budget, your spend, driving more efficiency and how you're managing your matters and reviewing and approving invoices and controlling costs. 
certainly I tend to agree with you. I think it's a great starting place and probably gives you good data to go on to, to start making better decisions with as well then. Yeah, it does. And it just having that one place where you can look and say, wow, we're spending a lot of money on employment litigation. When you look at a, a company that has 35,000 employees and you start to see, okay, well, we're spending a lot of money on employment litigation. What do we do? Do we go get maybe do an RFP to find something different? Or can we just look at a different pricing structure? But to have all that data there to say, yeah, here's what we spent. We need to really figure out if we can do something different because this is where so much of our money is going. And also it just helps going into budget season, right? To be armed with all that data going into your planning to say, yeah, here's why I need that money this year, because we're trying to figure out if we can trim it a little bit. But if this trend keeps up, we're going to need that money. I also found it really helpful when having conversations with the business to say, when you don't follow legal's advice, here's what it's costing the company. And at some point, we're going to bill this back to you. And so again, to have all that data handy and to be able to present it in a way that's a business person understands is just really, really helpful. 100%. And it firstly enables you to build a much stronger relationship with finance. And then secondly, as you highlighted, speak the language of the business as to why you're, you're trying to proactively manage risks and avoid the type of expensive litigation that can hit the bottom line. Fast forward then to when you joined UNFI. How did you approach developing your legal op strategy there? So yeah, they didn't have anybody in the role there either. You know, when I went in there, I had to understand What's UNFI's overall strategy as a company? What's the general counsel's vision and strategy for the team? And making sure that aligned with what her direct reports were thinking was their vision and strategy for the team. Anybody starting legal ops, it's kind of, you use that core 12 as, you know, this is how I'm going to assess this. I'm going to come in. I'm going to assess what's going on here by just kind of using that as the guide, go through it, figure out where are you on the scale of maturity, which I knew going in was probably going to be fairly immature, but that's kind of how I approached it was understanding where she saw the team going. And I would just kind of go in and be constantly checking that against the core 12. But what happens is sometimes you find a disconnect where She's got a vision of where things are going, but the people reporting to her don't, it doesn't really necessarily line up. And so you quickly get into things like having to deal with change management and all that, which you have to then factor into your strategy going forward. Like how do we tick some boxes so people see the benefit of legal ops in the short term, but also kind of figuring out my three-year strategy and dealing with how we're going to build this out and how we're going to deal with what's perceived as some kind of disruptive change along the way too. I think there's such great advice there and kind of legal operations to some extent acting as that bridge between the general counsel who might have those kind of bigger picture objectives aligned with what the company's trying to achieve and maybe a legal department experiencing different pains or not being fully on the same page and listening to both sets of stakeholders and turning that into a plan. I'd be interested to understand, Mary Beth, how you went about kind of promoting then the mission and values of the legal department and putting it into action. Yeah, again, I you kind of got to roll up your sleeves and get out there. And hopefully if you're in legal ops, you have 
a seat at the table as part of the legal leadership team. So first of all, you need to make sure everybody at that table is buying in, right? Like everybody needs to be on the same page. And if they're not on the same page, how do you get them all to the same page, which is often no easy feat, but you really need to have an, like your general counsel needs to have your back, right? In order to be able to help her promote her mission and values. And then from there, again, you need to help your team partner with the business as best they possibly can so that the business sees that the mission and the strategy of the legal department is not to get in the way of the business, but is to safeguard the business as they fulfill the company's mission and values. And so that becomes key to how you branch out from the legal department and, and kind of move that the legal department's vision out into the business. And I'm curious, I know you, you completed the Lean Six Sigma certification. What prompted you to do that? And what value did you get from it? Yeah, there's obviously a heavy component of legal ops that's business oriented, right? And there's a lot of people that do legal ops that aren't lawyers and they do it really well. So for me, it was, I obviously, I understand the law. I understand how lawyers think. I understand how legal departments work because I've been in them. So for me, doing the Lean Six Sigma was really about just fine-tuning some business skills, understanding how to identify waste and how to view process improvement from a purely business standpoint. So I took it upon myself. I'm like, well, I'm going to go take this and see. It's just more tools to have in your, your tool belt. You've got to continue to educate yourself in whatever career you're in. And you've got to know where your weaknesses are. And I felt like my weaknesses were a little bit on the business side. And I'm not going to go out and get an MBA at this point or anything like that. But I thought it was because it was a good opportunity too. when you do something like Six Sigmas, you end up working in spreadsheets a lot and you get into pivot tables and this and that. So it really kind of helped me with those skills. And so it sounds like something that has been of practical value to you subsequently in how you operate today. It absolutely is just trying to, to identify waste because I think where waste is, you can sort of see it, but then you, as you get deeper into the weeds, sometimes it's not so obvious. And so when you do something like a Lean Six Sigma, it gives you a little more education on how to identify that. And I don't remember everything I necessarily learned in that course because it's been several years now, but you always have those kind of workbooks and things to go back to when you're going, you know what? I think there might be an issue here in this process. Let me go back and pull out those tools and see if I can just implement some of those and try to identify. I think that's such great advice. And I can certainly relate to that. When I joined the inner CEO and in founding Bright Flag, I was obviously coming from a kind of a background practice in corporate law and kind of stepping into the technology space, the business space for the first time. And one of the resources that I found most useful was Coursera, which is an incredible platform and resource for opening up education opportunities and sharing knowledge in a way that wasn't possible previously. I'd be curious to understand, Mary Beth, what attracted you to Coursera? Just read the mission statement, right? I was just at the headquarters in California last week. We envision a world where anyone, anywhere has the power to transform their lives through learning. And I mean, we go back to when we started this podcast and I told you about my education experience, right? I couldn't go to the schools I necessarily wanted to go to because it was a financial issue for me and my family. But I got a, a quality education by taking a, a different route. And 
but I grew up in a family where my parents didn't go to college. They finished high school and that was what they could do. And so for me, I've seen what education can do. I can, in the world it can and create, it can give you a, a fulfilling job. It can give you all kinds of stuff, the ability to travel the world, whatever it is. And so knowing that Coursera's mission was to kind of, was to bring that learning to so many people in so many places that didn't have opportunities. It just aligned with kind of my own life experience. Granted, online learning didn't exist when I went to college, but it's just the importance of education and that education doesn't have to be at a certain school or in a certain place. It can be in your home and it can tra transform your life. And so for me, that was the top. They recruited me. So when I looked into them, that was the top piece. But then I met with the general counsel and Anne's, she's phenomenal. I mean, she is obviously so bright, just sees the value of legal operations. And she had been using some consultants for legal operations and so enthusiastic about bringing somebody on board. And the other thing, when you talk with her as a leader, she really wants to give you the tools to do your job and she empowers you to do your job. And that is, for me, that's huge. It's like, give me the runway to do what I need to do and just be there as a resource when needed. So those were the two main things for why I went to Coursera, but definitely the top billing was the mission. It certainly sounds like the recipe for success in RL, where you have that incredible mission of kind of, kind of democratizing education to some extent and making it much more accessible, as well as an inspiring leader and general counsel who you can truly collaborate with and is bought into the power of legal operations. So I imagine it, it hasn't been uh, difficult to get motivated for making an impact in Coursera. What have been your main areas of focus in your first year in the role? So I haven't even been here a full year yet, but for me, it's been looking at our existing technology because before we go out and I mean, everybody wants you know, we have this, this, and this, can we get this now? It's like, well, let's look at what we have and are we leveraging what we have to the best of its ability? And if we're not, let's try to figure out how we get on the pathway. You know, before I came, they had implemented Bright Flag. So now it's about, okay, we've implemented it, but are we really using it to the best that we can, right? We have the flags established, but are we really pushing back on law firms and things like that when those flags get raised? or we have a contract management system and what's working, what's not working. So that's been key. And then also kind of thinking ahead, okay, what else do we need to do? Where do we need to get organized? And what technology might we be missing? Or is technology even the solution? Like if, what do we need to be doing for process improvement and, and that kind of thing? So that's been the main focus for me is just kind of assessing what we have and trying to kind of make it a little bit tighter. Obviously having a leader like yourself leading the function to drive the value of whatever technology or processes or relationships you have in place is so critical. We always say like technology in isolation is kind of meaningless without the motivation and the kind of the strategy behind how you want to get the most out of it. Can you, you give us a sense of, of what's next then or any, are there any kind of specific initiatives you have in mind? Yeah, so it's interesting. As I said, we were, I was in California last week. We had a team offsite. It was so energizing to meet the team in person after meeting over Zoom for however long. And 
we had an opportunity as a team and as sub teams within legal to set out our three-year strategy. And I said this there, <laughs> I said, it's okay. If, if you, somebody asked me what's keeping me awake at night, it's the three-year strategy of all of you, because now like there's so much legal ops in it, right? It's like, we want to do this playbook and we want to have an internal web page and we want to do like all these different initiatives. And so for me, it's going back now and looking and saying, all right, what do we have that I can help execute on right now? But also what's next in technology for us? And I think for us, it's it's putting in a workflow system. So an intake system. So I can start to see just where is the volume coming from? And, and again, where is there gaps in service levels because we don't have enough people or maybe there's too much process maybe because you can over process things and so maybe there's too much of that so i think in the short term it's again trying to find some gains with the technology that we have we have a lot of technology in coursera right i mean it's it's a tech company so kind of leveraging what we have but also looking again at the core 12 and kind of saying all right what are we missing? And I think for us right now, it's probably having a good intake system and a document management system is, is going to be next for us. Those kind of offsites in person, getting that collaboration, that opportunity to kind of map out what the next few years need to look like and all of the inputs from the teams is really powerful, but equally challenging as you highlighted, because you can end up with a long list of initiatives that all in isolation make sense, but inevitably you have to be ruthless in your prioritization and what you focus on. And it sounds like you've, you've absolutely got a clear view of what's going to make the biggest impact in, in the short term. Returning to the topic of networking and the community, we've obviously referenced the Clock Core 12 as well. And I know you're active in the legal operations community and you've joined the Link Advisory Council. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about Link and the work that you do with the group? Sure. So yeah, I'm on the advisory council. For me, I always refer to clock because it's like your Bible, right? Of legal operations, but link to me makes it even more personal. We have more regular meetings and it's a network of people that I can see and I can get on zoom calls with. And so I know I can pick up the phone or email and reach out to these folks and talk about issues that I'm having. And I love that what we're doing is we're having targeted discussions every month about a particular topic. So it might be on alternative fee arrangements or whatever it is. It's very targeted. You see people, but then we go into breakout groups and we do some networking amongst ourselves, but we also have networking amongst vendors, which I really like. There's so much noise in the emails that come in from this vendor and that vendor, and I've got a contract management system and I've got a matter management. And, and it's just like, there's days where I just want to go delete, delete, delete. So I feel like this group is really helping us narrow down the really key players, the really valuable players who can help us all make things better for our, our teams. And so I think Link is doing, a, look, it's just getting started. There's obviously going to be a little bit of growing pains, I'm sure, along the way. But I love the targeted focus of that and of bringing vendors in too, because we all do need to be, even if I have a an e-billing platform now, I need to make sure that that's still the right e-billing platform for us three years from now, right? As I do my roadmap. So 
that's why I think clock is obviously good for its libraries and you can ask a question and put it out there, but I just feel like it's link is a little bit more personal connection. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been lucky enough to participate in some of those sessions and, and obviously know Steph Corey very well as well. So I think it's playing a really important role in, in the community. And Mary Beth, this has been great an unbelievable insight into your career journey and your resilience and how you've kind of built such expertise in the space of legal ops over time. Final question for me unrelated to the world of legal ops is what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Golf, golf and more golf. So that's uh, when I can, it's sometimes it's a little hectic, but I love, I just, it's, I just took it up probably like four years ago now. And it's been another lesson in overcoming adversity because they make it look really easy on TV. And then when you go out there, you're like, wow, this game is so, it's this tiny ball and it's so hard. I always say to people, it's the only thing I do where I'm not thinking about either work or things that I need to tend to in my personal life that totally frees my mind. And so that's why I do it. And I love it. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have a pastime and a passion that gives you that that mindfulness. And uh, I, I've dabbled in it over the years and uh, don't have the patience, <laughs> don't have the patience for it. Certainly not at this stage. Maybe I'll, I'll come back to it. But but Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really fantastic conversation. I've personally learned a huge amount from it. Oh, great. Thanks, Alex. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.